Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians 6 once again. As we can continue to consider this topic of the whole armor of God. Today we're going to focus on the shield of faith. That's in verse 16. So to begin, I'll just read verses 14 through 16 this morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So let's look to God in prayer and ask for his help as we come to the shield of faith this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it tells us what we should know about you. And it tells us what you expect, what you require of us in terms of our lives and our obedience. We thank you it tells us about this spiritual battle that we are all in against the forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we thank you for its instruction about this wonderful armor that you have provided for all of your people. Help us to learn about it. Help us to understand it. Help us to believe in it. And help us to wear it and use it as we do battle against your and our foes for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Teach us in this hour, for we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, as we think about the shield of faith today, let's start out with a question. What is this illustration trying to tell us? What do we learn? What can we learn from this picture of thinking of faith as a shield and as a piece of armor for us in the battle that we all fight as we live our Christian life. So what is, what is this illustration or this picture about? And I'll focus on three things uh, that Paul mentions here, the prominent things in this statement. Take the shield of faith with which we will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. First, the shield... The shield, of course, most of you know what a shield is. It's a piece of armor, a piece of equipment that a soldier back in those days would hold up in front of himself. Now, uh, soldiers that go into battle, Marines, they wear a Kevlar chest shield of sorts, but it's affixed to their bodies and it's, they wear it tightly on their uh, torso. But back then, they carried their own shield and a shield here is distinguished from a buckler. There are two different kinds of shields, really. A buckler was a small round shield, and you might see a soldier holding a buckler uh, in his hand, with his hand in his wrist. It's a, it was a round, smaller shield 
that he could use to defend himself even in a sword battle that he might be in or with a knife if he needed to. But a shield that it refers to is a bigger thing. It's a bigger uh, piece of equipment. It's from the Greek word, this word for shield here, for door. And that's because it approximated the size of a door. Um, and I was looking at the pulpit during the um, uh, Sunday school class, I'll confess. Uh, my mind wasn't always in exactly the place it should have been, but I was trying to think of how can I illustrate this. And I think, from what I read in commentaries, this kind of a shield they're talking about was probably right around the height of this pulpit, and it would be right about the width, maybe, of this section here, maybe a, a little bit wider, about two by four feet. So it didn't quite cover the man from head to toe who was wielding it, but you can imagine, especially if there was a line of Roman soldiers going forward and each was carrying a shield of that size, that if they began to come near enough to the enemy, that the enemy was waiting for them and began from, I don't know, 100 or 200 yards to launch arrows at them, they could all stand shoulder to shoulder put their shields in front of them on the ground and perpendicular to the ground, bend down, and they would have a pretty nice wall that would deflect arrows until the enemy either decided to make a move or ran out of arrows and could sit there all day. Their, the composition of that shield, if for a Roman soldier anyway, would be wood inside, and then it would be uh, covered or... Um, um, overlaid with some kind of metal to protect them. That's the shield. That's the picture, at any rate. That's what is illustrated here. It's being used to illustrate faith. We'll talk about faith in a few moments. Another thing we have in this text is the fiery darts of the wicked one. The wicked one is the devil. But what are the fiery darts? Well, the fiery darts would be darts, something smaller perhaps than an arrow, but maybe it's just talking about arrows. And sometimes uh, things would be launched, including arrows. They might be dipped in some kind of flammable material and then lit on fire and then shot. And it says here that those fiery darts would come. And so those were darts or arrows you especially would want to avoid striking you and especially penetrating yourself so they would want to hide behind these shields. Well, the fiery darts, of course, when we think about the battle for the faith or the battle of the Christian faith, the spiritual battle that Paul is writing about here is a battle against the powers of darkness, the devil and demons in part, at least. And so the devil, demons, they fire fiery darts at believers. Those are the things we're talking about here. They can be challenges, as we've looked at already in this discussion of the spiritual battle we're in. It could be challenges the devil makes against our faith, his threats to assurance that he constantly raises to some of God's saints. Think of the way he dealt with Job. He went to God, and remember what his goal was. He said, Job calls himself a servant of you, and of course he is, for now, because things are going well in his life. But Satan said, take away some of those things and he won't serve you. He won't be faithful to you. He's just in it for what good he can get out of it. 
Now, Satan was proved to be wrong when the Lord allowed him to tempt and challenge Job's faith in the ways that he did. That's some of the fiery darts that come to us, challenges to our faith that even make us doubt whether we truly believe the things we say we believe at times. And then also the fiery darts would certainly be temptations to sin. Think of Jesus' challenges that he received from the devil in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, culminating at the end of that time in the accounts that we have in Luke chapter 4 and in Matthew chapter 4. Or turn with me over to uh, James chapter 1 for a moment and notice something about those fiery darts of the devil in James 1 and verse 13. doesn't speak directly about the fiery darts of the devil, but it speaks indirectly about them. It speaks directly about temptation and temptations to sin, but it speaks about God's activity or lack of it in that regard. And notice what it says in verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Now, there's kind of a play on words there because the word tempt is the same in Greek as the word test. God does test people. It's a clear statement here, though, that he doesn't tempt anyone to sin. The goal of what God does is never to get anyone to sin. God never, ever does that. But the reason I turn to this passage is this. Satan always does that. He is constantly doing that in the Christian life. Just like he did in Matthew 4 with Jesus in the wilderness. And we're going to look at that instance um, in a coming message, I think maybe the next one, on the sword of truth. But for now, the point is, those are the fiery darts of the wicked one. His challenges to your faith, to your, your spiritual uh, well-being, if we could say. He wants you to doubt. He wants you, if you're going to serve God, to serve Him haltingly, hesitantly, uh, um, not meekly, because we do want to be meek, right? The fruit of the Spirit. But meekly in the sense of not being bold in the faith and ready to obey God at every point and do His will and believe His Word at every point. Satan has many devices and he uses people to test and tempt us. He uses things, especially when we think of the sins of materialism that distract us and threaten to even take us out of the way <clears throat> in which we're seeking to walk. He uses thoughts in our minds. I don't think there's any other way to understand the Scripture than to believe that the wicked one has the ability to plant thoughts in our minds. He can only do it with the permission of God, but he does it. Think of that statement about uh, Judas, about how Satan entered him. It doesn't mean necessarily demon possession at that point, but he took over his mind and made these wicked suggestions that Judas swallowed whole. These are all fiery darts that are constantly coming at every Christian. 
So the shield, the fiery darts to protect against them, which come, which, uh, which, um, come in the form of faith, the shield of faith. And then um, one other interesting point. Notice how it says at the end of verse 16, and I have to turn back there. It says, you take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. We can quench the fiery darts. It's an interesting thing to say about a shield. That it even extinguishes fiery darts that come at it. So you can think about that and meditate on that and think of all the different possibilities. Perhaps here, when that's not usually the function of a shield, to quench fire, maybe to stop it from going any farther, but not to quench it. Maybe that perhaps that's a hint on the Apostle Paul's part that he's obviously talking about things of a supernatural character here. Shields don't normally quench darts, but that's what this shield does. At any rate, we can say this about this shield of faith. It is an amazing and effective piece of armor. And this is one of the things that we should be getting out of these messages. What great provision God has given his saints. You may not look at yourself as a great person, a great Christian. As a general rule, we shouldn't look at ourselves that way. We should strive to be that, pray that God would make us that. We should be humble, acknowledge that we are weak, poor, beggars, spiritually speaking. As Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit who realize that that's what they are in themselves. And then remember, those who take that low place, those are the ones that God makes great in his kingdom. We should all have humility. We should have that humble posture. But we should realize, brethren, though we may be like Paul called himself, less than the least of all the saints. God has given every one of us great armor, great weapons with which to fight the good fight of the faith, with which to try to stand in the power of God, and to, having done all, stand in the end. May we realize these things and may it be impressed more upon us as we hear the preaching of the word on this subject of the spiritual armor. Well, for today, we want to fight, figure what we can learn from the shield of faith and as we focus on, upon, upon faith for the battle that we all face and that we're all in. So what, is, what can we learn from the illustration? But now, since we know that the shield represents faith, let's focus for the rest of our time on faith and I'll mention how it's a shield, etc. But let's focus on faith and how faith helps us in the spiritual battle that we're in. What is it about faith that makes it a piece of armor like this? Well, let's start out with a definition of faith. And I'm just going to take one from the Word of God itself. Let's go over to Ephesians. Hebrews chapter 11. well-known chapter on the subject of faith. Some people have called it the hall of faith. 
think Pastor Dom might have done that when he preached in the um, women's conference not that long ago. But we have this statement at the beginning of Hebrews 11, which lays out these great heroes of the faith as we look at them and consider them from the Old Testament. And it makes this statement about faith right at the, right at the beginning. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And that points us in the direction we need to go for, especially as we think of faith being a shield and a piece of armor in the battle that we face as Christians. And if I could say that the essence of what it says here about faith is, is this, it's the conviction, it says they're the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Another word that could go there is, would be the conviction. Or it says in the margin in my Bible, the confidence regarding things unseen. That's faith. We sang about this in the last hymn we sang. This whole list of things related to Jesus Christ and his work, and the fact that he was an actual man who actually lived, in Palestine in the first century, we never saw him. We never saw anything he did. But every Christian here in this room believes what the Bible says about the fact that he existed and about everything he did, whether it's a miracle, whether it's his death on the cross, whether it's his resurrection from the grave. We did not see the angels at the tomb. We did not see Christ risen from the dead. We did not see him ascending into heaven. But we believe that angels said, why seek the living with the dead? That's faith. Conviction regarding things not seen. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 7, the words of the Apostle Paul, we walk by faith not by sight. In other words, we live our whole life on the basis of things that we have not seen with our own eyes. But the fact that we have faith in those things and in the God who tells us those things means that the things we see by faith are real to us. Faith is the substance, the conviction the realization of things not seen. That is faith. Faith can involve sight. Turn with me back to John chapter 20 for a moment. John chapter 20 and verses 6 through 8. It's an account of the day of Jesus' resurrection. An account of the apostles' Peter and John coming to the tomb on that first Lord's Day morning. The day after the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, the first day of the week. And we read in verses 6 through 8 of John 20, or the account leading up to this point tells how um, the apostles had heard from the women that they saw Jesus, and then Peter and John ran to the tomb and 
John outran Peter and so on. Then we read this. Then Simon Peter came following John and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and that would be John, and he saw and believed. Now, should he have believed before that, that Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah. Why? Because Jesus had told the apostles, the Son of Man is going to be put on trial by the Jews, and he's going to be mocked and persecuted and put to death. But on the third day, he will rise again. He told them and told them again and again. And did they believe it when the women said it? No. But John saw the linen cloths lying there, which he knew had been on Jesus' body. And the scripture tells us he believed. And we have a later, another account similar to it in John 21, the next chapter, about doubting Thomas. He didn't believe but then he did believe. What was the difference? He didn't see Jesus risen from the dead. Didn't put his hand on his side and his finger in the holes in his wrists. But when he did that, he did believe. Well, does it mean because he saw it couldn't really be faith? No. He saw and he believed. And Jesus said he was blessed because he believed. But he said, blessed are those who do not see and believe. And for us, it's seeing everything. Not, excuse me, it's believing everything that the Bible says, none of which we may have seen. We didn't see the creation of the world. We didn't see Jesus' miracles and on and on down the list. Faith can involve sight. Seeing the linens folded up there in the tomb was a help to John. They helped him to lay hold of the trustworthiness of God who promised that his Christ would rise. Helped him to lay hold of the power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Helped him to lay hold of the otherworldliness of our God and his works on behalf of his elect. And when we speak about faith and when we speak about the shield of faith, whenever the Bible talks about faith, it's very important for us to understand that we're not talking about, the Apostle Paul here is not talking about, none of the biblical writers in the New Testament are talking about the world's view of faith. The world has a view of faith. The world many times likes to talk about faith. I used the illustration in the basketball camp because it was a basketball camp. Some of you who are uh, sports fans would understand this. Sometimes, you know, you have the NCAA tournament and you come to the end and a champion is crowned. Or you have the NBA playoffs and a champion is crowned at the end of it. And someone will be interviewing one of the players on this NCAA championship team or the NBA championship team. And the person would say, Tell us how you feel, because this was such a long season for you guys, and you went through so much adversity, and on and on and on. How did you overcome? And they say, well, 
we just had faith. We just had faith all along. No matter what happened, no matter how bad it got, we continued to have faith in ourselves. And people say, oh, what great faith. That's not faith. Not from a biblical standpoint. No. When the Bible says faith, it's not talking about quote-unquote people of faith because they call themselves spiritual people or maybe they go to a mosque or some other kind of place. No, it's talking about Christians and it's talking about Christian faith. When the Bible speaks of faith, it is talking about faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, who saved his people from their sins. It's talking about faith in Christ for the purposes of what we're talking about here in Ephesians 6 having a strong piece of armor to quench the fiery darts of the devil. Faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins which is promised in Him. Faith in Jesus Christ for comfort in the midst of life's worst trials as God takes us through deep waters and through fiery trials in our lives. Faith in Christ for the power to overcome everything in us that does not want to obey Jesus' commandments, though they're so simple and straightforward in terms of what He wants us to do, but so difficult in terms of our willingness and perceived ability to do them. That's faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. And when the Bible says faith, it's talking about Faith, that means believing all that the Scripture says about everything it addresses. And I'll come back to that. And another thing it means that I'll also come back to and focus upon is this in this statement from our Confession of Faith. It's something that is different, as I already stated, from the faith of this world. But the statement in the confession makes this very, very clear and explicit. Listen to what it says at one point in our Confession of Faith, chapter 14, the third paragraph. It says, faith in Christ, and remember, that's the faith we're talking about here when, when we talk about faith according to the New Testament, according to the Bible. Faith in Christ, although it be different in degrees, in different believers and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it different in the kind or nature of it from the faith of temporary believers. In other words, those who say they're believers but are not. And therefore, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory. In fact, we can say the kind of faith the Bible is talking about is different from the faith, faith of someone who just professes to believe in Christ but really doesn't. It's also, as I said, different from everything in the world that is called faith. There is no comparison between genuine faith in Christ and everything else because genuine faith in Christ is a supernatural thing. Nobody natively believes the truth of God's word. As we read in Psalm 2, everybody comes into this world as an enemy of God, working, if to do anything, to overthrow God's kingdom. 
and to depose the Son of God. Not to worship Him and serve Him in humility. So faith is a supernatural thing. It only comes when the Holy Spirit opens the heart, when He enlightens the understanding, when He causes the heart to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. And then we can say, when that faith happens in the heart of a believer, there is nothing in comparison between that and the faith either of an unbeliever or of someone who just has a worldly kind of faith. And so we should remember then when we talk about the shield of faith, brethren, as I said already, it is an amazing and effective piece of armor. And it's like I said in a previous message in this series, each piece of armor described here in Ephesians chapter 6 is like Goliath's sword. As David said, there is none like it. Brethren, let's get that point as we go through these pieces of armor. And when you're done with this sermon series, even if you can't remember a lot of specifics, let's remember this. If you're a Christian, you have been outfitted with armor by God. And there is none like it. And whatever you face in your life, no matter how deep are the valleys, no matter how hot are the battles, no matter how torrential are the rains and the floods, you are equipped. So I just want to focus on two things then, probably in the rest of the time I have this morning. Two things I want to emphasize here. I've touched on them to one degree or another. They're both stated in the confession. The first one is, and I, and I just mentioned this in my second point there about faith in distinction from the faith of the world. Faith believes God's word. I said a moment ago, it believes all that the scripture says about everything it addresses. Here's the statement in the confession that, that makes this point. By this faith, it says, that's faith, Christian faith, saving faith. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself. In other words, a Christian is someone who understands, even if he heard it all his life growing up, preacher took the Bible maybe held it up, and he said, this is the Word of God. Or maybe he read the Scripture, and after he finished reading, he said, thus God's Word. person may have heard that his whole life, but when he comes to have real saving faith in Christ, he understands that God really did speak in this Word, and that when that Word is read and when it's preached, God is speaking still. And so that's a Christian, someone who believes that the Bible is God's word. And so he's brought by God to understand that, and then he believes it. And he believes it because of the authority of the God whose word it is. So it's like people say about, um, you know, I think maybe this is a military thing, I don't know, but... The, the recruits are taught when your drill sergeant or any commanding officer says to you, jump, you ask how high. 
In other words, you do it. You don't question it other than to say, how high? How high do you want me to jump? I'll do it. That's the attitude a Christian has to the Word of God. Faith believes God's Word. That's a good description of faith, at least insofar as it goes, in terms of the Word of God. But as I said, it's also a description of the Christian. Faith believes whatever is true. The Christian believes whatever is true if he has faith in the Word of God. It's legitimate to say that by definition, a true Christian believes to be true whatever God's Word says. Some immature Christians may not believe. They may not believe everything the Bible says. They may not believe whatsoever the Bible says, as the um, writers of the Confession stated it. But notice I said that's an immature Christian. He has to learn. I think sometimes there are immature Christians who don't believe everything the Bible says because of their ignorance, their lack of instruction and understanding. In fact, we had that a few weeks ago when our brother Dr. McIntosh was here and he, he made comment about he thinks there are some genuine Christians who do not believe all that the Bible says about creation and the supernaturalness and immediateness and immediacy, I guess, and the brevity of it in terms of all encompassed in six days. What he's saying is, we can cut them some slack. Maybe they need to learn more yet. But the point is, the Christian has that disposition. Maybe he's converted from a false religion. And he was always taught this could never be true that the Bible says, and that could never be true. And he thinks, how could it be true that uh, Jonah was really swallowed by a big fish and spit up on land alive three days later and something like that? But over time, he comes to understand that would be nothing for God to do that. God brought the world into existence by the word of his mouth. That's faith. Eventually, the Christian comes to understand. It doesn't just apply to someone who was brought up in a false religion. It applies to those who grow up in Christian homes where you've been taught the word of God from your youth. Remember this. Though you might see it in people out there in this world, though they might profess to be Christians... They're not believing everything the, word, the Bible says, and you know it says. Don't look at that as a legitimate thing. Look at that as what I just called it. Maybe that person is a believer who's just a very immature believer, who has very weak faith at this point, but can grow in faith with God's help. But don't use that experience of seeing people like that who call themselves Christians but don't believe parts of the Word of God. Maybe neglect parts of the Word of God and say, well, it's okay, I guess, to treat the Bible like a buffet or a smorgasbord, and I can take and choose parts I like and leave parts I don't. Don't think of it that way. Because there's a parts of the Bible that natively none of us likes. And parts of the Bible that some of us, because of the way God formed us in the womb and because of our experiences in life and because especially of our remaining sin, 
we don't like still. But you don't pick and choose. So that's the first thing I wanted to emphasize. Faith believes God's word. And this is a huge, huge thing to grasp hold of. If you want to have an effective shield in the battle in the Christian life. And then the second thing I want to emphasize is that faith responds in various ways to the various parts of God's Word. It responds in various ways to the various parts of God's Word. I'll, I'll take another statement from the Confession. In another place it says, Faith acts differently upon that which each particular passage of Scripture contains. Faith acts differently toward each particular passage of Scripture that it, cont it contains. In other words, and here's how they say it in the Confession, faith yields obedience to the commands. So there's a command. If you have faith, how do you respond to that? You do it. Or you make every effort that with God helping you to do it. I know there are many things in opposition. There's the world, there's the flesh. In Ephesians 6, there's the devil. They're in opposition. But faith says, despite all the opposition, that's the path I've got to walk. So it yields obedience to the commands. Secondly, it trembles at the threatenings. Now remember this, faith trembles at the threatenings. We think of Psalm 2, and we think of the leaders of the world set in array against God and against his Christ. And we think, well, they should be trembling because the psalm talks about his judgments that are going to come crashing down upon them. They should be trembling. But I'm saying faith should tremble. I agree with the writers of the confession. Faith trembles at the threatenings of the Word of God. How does that work? Well, it's, it's, it's in Psalm 2. Did you catch it? It said, rejoice with trembling. So in other words, un the unbelieving kings of the world do not rejoice with trembling. They should tremble, but they won't rejoice. What they're trembling at is the judgment of God that's going to come crashing down on them if they don't repent. But the Bible is saying to believers, rejoice with trembling. This is how you should respond. You should kiss the Son, and you should rejoice with trembling. In other words, though I'm a Christian, and I'm looking forward to the day of judgment, I look forward to it with trembling, because I know how high the stakes are. I know who is the holy God that's going to stand at the, at, at, as my judge in the judgment at the last day, so my rejoicing is a very sober rejoicing. And I also rejoice in trembling because I'm rubbing shoulders on a regular basis with all kinds of people who are not going to have the glad time in judgment that I am. So our rejoicing is always with trembling. We tremble at the threatenings. And to say, God, I'm going to go in that path. Keep me from the judgment that is being threatened here. But I'm going to walk carefully. Isn't that what Paul says in another place? Christian, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then it says it embraces the promises of God. 
for this life and that which is to come. So faith acts in different ways. If it's a promise, faith embraces it and rejoices in it. If it's a threatening, faith trembles. There's a sober rejoicing. Rejoice with trembling. And then if it's a command, faith says, this is what I've got to do. It obeys. We could add to what the Puritans said there, like something like how faith reacts to the things we heard in the Sunday school class today. It's just flat out teaching about God and his sovereignty. Well, faith, faith lays hold of that. It believes it. And it embraces those truths about God as well, just like it embraces the promises. And I'll mention later about all the blessings that come to us when we embrace simply the truth about God and what Scripture teaches us about Him. So all these things are faith. All these things. A lack of any one of these things is a lack of faith. And isn't that what James says? about people who say they believe in God, but they don't do what God says in James chapter 2. James says, you may call it faith, but he says, I don't call it that. He says, faith without works is dead, and you don't have any works. In other words, when you hear the commands, you don't obey. You're trying to tell me that when you hear the other parts of the word of God, like promises, you love those, and the fact that there is one God only, well, you love that, and you, you write that on your doorpost. And you put up a flag that says there's only one God, worship Him. But you're not doing the whole thing. You're not acting the way faith should act at every point. Like, for instance, when the commands come. And James says that's not faith. Well, the best we could say, brethren, is when we see that, whether in ourselves or someone else. It's weak faith, or we could use Jesus' words, little faith. But faith is acting toward the word in the way every text, every statement requires. When we think of someone with great faith, we think of someone believing God's promises. Don't you think of someone like um, Mueller? What was his name? George, thank you. George Mueller. When we think of great, I often think of him when I think of great faith. And the demonstration of that is I just thought of him now, but I couldn't remember his first name. I would have written it. He had faith in the promises of God, so much so that that man who established an orphanage in England, I think in the 19th century, so much so... He never asked people to donate money for his orphans and his orphanage. And if he had a gas bill coming due on Tuesday, he would not go visit anybody on Monday when he was 100 pounds short or whatever short he was of paying his gas bill on Tuesday. He just would not do it. He would pray. And there is story after story about how God sent some widow or a, or a telegraph, someone who wired money or whatever they did back then, just in the nick of time. Now that is great faith. He had faith that God will provide because God promised. And he stood on those promises. But brethren, what I'm saying in light of what we see about faith 
believing God's word at every point and responding in different ways to different parts of God's word, we should no less think of someone having great faith who obeys God's word in the face of difficulty or opposition. You may not be trained in your mind to think of it that way. That is great faith. That's a lot of what Hebrews 11 is about. People who were threatened and lost a place to live, they wandered in caves and holes in the ground. People who faced persecution because they took the stand like the apostles took. We must obey God rather than men and lost their lives because of it. Or like it said, some, some women lost their children because of it. That was great faith. We should think of the person who obeys as having great faith. The person who trembles at the threatenings of God is a person of great faith. We should think of the person who, because he knows that Scripture says, flee immorality. We should think of that person as having great faith. Why? Because he believes the Bible's warnings. And he believes the Bible's threats. And therefore... He observes all of God's commandments, even though he might be like Joseph in a faraway place where there's no, there are no other Israelites, nobody who truly knows God. Who would know? Plus, it would keep me out of prison as well as give me an afternoon of delight if I just let this woman have her way. And he would not do it. He obeyed God's commands great faith or the young person who obeys his parents commandments every other kid in his class is going to go do this and it would be pretty easy for him because of the timing and the place and all that that dad or mom would never find out because everybody who could rat on me is doing it and he says no You might not put his example there as a footnote in George Mueller's biography if you edit a new version of it. But that's a person of great faith when he does that. Or the wife who submits to her husband. Like First Peter 3 says. And she's tempted to say, well, he's not even a believer. And not only is he not a believer, he's a believer who's very antagonistic to my faith and my Savior and his word. But she does what Peter says, that you should seek to win him without a word instead of constantly telling him everything he doesn't want to hear and everything you think he needs to hear. And be like Sarah, who quietly and humbly submitted to her husband. That's great faith. Or the Christian who keeps God's day holy, though he may be despised for it, not only by his employer, 
who wants him to put in extra hours on his one day off of the week, but he knows it's God's day, or maybe even other professing Christians who just don't get it, that there are actually ten commandments in God's moral law. That's great faith. Why do such people do those things? They do them simply because God's word says. And that's faith. Remember one of the texts we saw last week. Jesus talked about people coming to him in the day of judgment and saying, Lord, Lord. Well, I have it right here. Um, Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those were people who professed to have faith. And he says in his, his teaching there at the end of Matthew 7, they, said, they, they, they argued, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We went out and preached. Think Judas. Lord, we did miracles in your name. Think Judas. What was wanting in their faith? Jesus said it this way. Not everyone who says to me, who calls me Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Great obedience in the faith of op face of opposition is great faith. You use that shield of faith to not be overcome by the opposition, the fiery darts of the wicked one. It's not as exciting or radical or glamorous as becoming a missionary and going far away and living off the grid and preaching to people who never heard the gospel, etc. And I am not downplaying that as well. I wish we had more who do it in our day. May God raise them up from among us. But it's what Christ wants. It is what Christ wants. He's the one who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Who said, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Here's an important statement in Hebrews 11, that chapter about faith. He says, the writer said, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, that is, that God exists. I think we read it in the Sunday school class. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You believe that he is, you believe everything the scripture says about him, and you believe what he commands, that he's going to reward you. Not that you earn it, but he's going to do it. Obeying his commands, brethren, is a big part of diligently seeking him. Another part of it is learning about God and his ways. Think of the way that the, we, we heard about the larger catechism already this morning. Think about the way that both the larger and the shorter catechism summarize everything that's taught in the entire Bible. They summarize it this way. The Bible teaches us, and I'm shortening this. In fact, this might be the children's catechism, all right? I'll do it that way. I like to be simple in my preaching. The Bible teaches us who God is. That's half of the teaching of the Bible. And what he requires of us. That's the Bible. To which of those parts should we respond in faith? Yes, both is the right answer. Everything it says about his, oh, the commandments that we should obey 
We should respond with the faith of obedience. And everything it says about who God is, we should respond in faith. But I don't like what he said about God being sovereign. I believe in free will. All the philosophers say that. How could they be wrong? If the Bible says it, you believe it. That's faith. I've never liked the question, how big is your God? To me, it implies that God can change in size. Or that there are different gods that are different sizes. So I don't like that question. Thankfully, none of you has ever asked me that question. Because the answer is, God is always as big as he could be. And he never changes. I am the Lord, I change not. We could say it this way. The intent of the question is not all bad. How big do you understand God to be? Or do you realize how big God is? I guess the right answer to that would be no. But I realize he's as big as could be. The doctrine of the immensity of God. He is without limit. That's what we need to believe about God, brethren. And to believe that about God, we have to believe everything the Word says about it. The way to grow in both of these things, in obedience to the Scripture, but also in our understanding of God, knowing what God requires of us and knowing who God is, the way to grow in both of those things is to soak our minds and our souls with everything he tells us about those subjects. We have to familiarize ourselves with what the Bible tells us about them. If you want to know what God requires of you, read His commands. Read the Word of God through and through. Pastor Smith gave an excellent exhortation about that this morning. Turn your, your smartphone off. Turn the face down. Get in another room from it. Read the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God. The same is true when it comes to knowing who God is. Think of the sovereignty of God. We heard this morning how some writers, Spurgeon was one of the ones quoted, he said, the study of God will expand the mind like no other study there could be. And it will expand the soul, Spurgeon said. You know what else it will expand, brethren? Your shield of faith. Oh, but my life is so tough right now. I don't have time to sit down and read my Bible today. Remember what Luther said about that idea? He said, and Luther was fighting the spiritual battle like none of us ever will, all right? We can all admit that. He said, I have so much to do today and the powers of darkness are so much at my heels. I need to take extra time in the Word of God, and in prayer today. May God give us that attitude. Brethren, the answer here is this. You want to expand the shield of faith? Live in the Word of God more and more. I'll say more about this next time when we come to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But just believe, brethren, the more you live in Scripture the greater will be your faith, the greater will be your shield of faith, the more um, 
the greater ability to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Your shield of faith will have. And I'm just going to close then with these, these closing words, especially to unbelievers. It's really a practical application of what I've seen. As I, sa- as I said, I've said it in previous messages, if you are an unbeliever, you don't have armor. You don't have a shield of faith. But here's an implication for you, and a practical way to apply the things I've said, even though you're not a Christian. The text I read just a few moments ago begins this way, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if you don't believe the gospel, you don't believe Jesus is God, and He's the one Savior of sinners, the Savior that you need, you cannot please God. It's impossible. So don't, don't even think about it. Don't bother trying. Remember, the biblical definition of faith is you believe whatever the Bible says. And you may say to me, especially in light of what I said earlier, you may come to me and say, you know, you're an educated person. At least you seem like it. You're telling me you believe everything the Bible says? Come on. You believe that God created all this stuff in the blink of an eye, in the space of six days, just by speaking? You don't believe in evolution? You don't believe in the testimony of the rocks and science? That's right, I, I do believe what the Bible says about creation. That he created everything in six days by the word of his power and all very good. I believe Genesis 1. Yes. You believe that a snake came to the first woman and started talking? And told her to eat a piece of forbidden fruit? And that brought death into the world and plunged the entire mass of humanity that would ever live into a sea of sin? Yes, I believe Genesis 3. And I believe in what the Bible says about the God-man, Jesus Christ, who left the throne of glory and came into this world out of love for sinners, to save sinners, and that he is one person of the Trinity that the Bible describes. I believe all that. I believe that he was put to death on a cross and that that death on the cross, by that death, he saved every one of his elect people forever. And I believe he rose from the dead. And I believe he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. I believe all of those things. Why? Because Scripture says it and Scripture is the Word of God and he is the ultimate authority of the universe. Jesus said how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know what a rich man was in Jesus' day? 
wasn't necessarily a billionaire, someone who had everything he needed, didn't feel the need to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. That was a rich man. And Jesus said, for a person like that, it's hard to enter the kingdom of God. You know why? Because it's hard to believe these things. Because if you have everything you need, you know who you generally believe in? Yourself. That's why if you believe in yourself, you have no shield of faith. But though it says that it's hard for a rich man to believe, there is no excuse for anybody not to believe the truth of God's word. There's no excuse. There are no exemptions. The Bible doesn't say every poor person should believe the word. No, it says everybody should. And we can add, if you don't believe what the Bible teaches, not only is it impossible for you to please God, it's impossible to, for you to be saved. You have no protection from Satan, period. And he's after you just as much as he is every believer. It's just that he doesn't have to try as hard because he already has you in his back pocket. May God deliver you today from the back pocket of the devil, from yourself, from your sin, from death, from hell, from the coming wrath of God. And the one place you can find deliverance is in the sinless Son of God, who out of love for lost sinners like you and like me, came into this world, died on the cross in the place of all his people, rose from the dead to vindicate us, and will at the last day come again to judge the living and the dead and to receive us who believe in him into his kingdom. That's what the Bible teaches, and I urge you today to read your Bible and humble yourself and believe everything it says. May God grant you that grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your mercy in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you are true and that you've given us your word, which is truth. Fulfill the prayer of Jesus for your people here today when he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We ask it in his name. Amen.